start with <coughs> a mantra. We'll do that. Om Brahmanandam, Paramasukadam. How many people know that? Uh, most of the people, some of the people. <coughs> okay. Well, you can just listen. It's a very beautiful mantra. translate that because those people that said that they know this um, mantra do they know the meaning of it? I know but I don't think anyone got it. You explained it guess, And I already explained it. It's on tape somewhere. Okay. And we let it go. There's two, two little phrases in there. One is Tatvamasya Delakshyam which means that which is the essence of the sentence tatvamasi. The essence of tatvamasi is that one non-dual reality. It doesn't mean there's a tat and a tvam of that and you, and somehow they're joined or unified. It means one reality. Tatvamasiya delakshyam, and the other is and the whole unique thing that we're taking in this class is Sarvadi Sakshi Bhutam. It is the witness of the intellects of all beings. That means that that Shetragnya, that witnessing consciousness, that's the witness of my intellect, every thought that's arising. The Upanishad <coughs> says, <coughs> Priti-bodha-viditam-matam. This reality is said to be known with every thought. With every thought, it's there present. Priti-bodha, with every mental modification, priti-bodha-viditam. It is known. It's never hidden. Every time a thought arises, that witness has to be there. It is said, matam, it is thought to be known with every thought. Priti bodha viditam. And we have a new member here. Priti bodha viditam matam. Yeah. 
That whole mantra is nothing but talking about the highest reality. Every single one of those descriptions, kevalam jnanam vartim, ekam nityam vimala achalam, without any defects, never changing, all of that Satguru Tamnamami. That's the same as that Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Sakshat Parabrahma. That the absolute reality is the Guru. It's the same exact thing. And that Guru is that full description. All of those words, that's who the Guru is. Your own self. He's the witness of your intellect. Okay, so this morning I thought I would kind of keep it a little lighter. I wanted to say a few comments. We won't get to the text probably this morning, but so I'll just make a few comments. One is I was thinking that um, for those of you, and I think most of you here, of course you're interested in spirituality or you wouldn't be here. You're interested in uh, yoga and... uh, and Eastern ideas and things like that. And you all may have had many teachers, and you see you walk around here, there's many pictures of saints and sages, and you've heard of other saints and sages, and you may have gotten the impression that I'm very critical of all of them. And I kind of... uh, negative towards these teachers. So I want to clarify where my position is with this. These people like Swami Shivananda, Swami Dayananda, Swami Chinmayananda, these are all great saints. They're sadhakas. They did tremendous work for Vedanta. And uh, in many ways, I shouldn't even have the courage to even say a word about them, a person like me. And they've, all of them, to some extent, Ramana Maharshi, Swami Dayananda, Swami Swami Vivekananda is the one who brought Vedanta to the West. If it wasn't for him, hardly anyone in the West would have even heard of it. Swami Dayananda was the first one to bring out the traditional Vedanta, the emphasis on Shankaracharya. <clears throat> Ramana Maharshi has inspired hundreds of thousands of people to get on the spiritual path because his teachings were so direct and so empty of any type of dogmatic uh, religious, who am I? That's it. Who am I? What a wonderful... What a wonderful approach. My only criticism is that, I'll say one more word about this. (laughs) Shankaracharya, throughout his bhashyas, his commentaries, is very critical. He criticizes the Buddha. He criticizes the Buddha. He criticizes all these other Advaita Vedantins. He criticizes all of the Vaishnavas. He criticizes all of the Jain saints. And then he writes in a particular place, he says, this criticism that we have of the other schools and other teachers, it is not out of any 
enmity or anger or lack of respect towards those people, then why do you do it? It's not because we hate those people. We're doing it only so that those true seekers of truth don't get led astray. So that while he respected all of these people, he belonged to a particular tradition, and in relation to that tradition, which he thought was the correct understanding of the Vedanta, on that basis he was criticizing not people, but schools of thought. And the purpose of the criticism is not to criticize a person, but to show the defect in that way of thinking so that people that sincerely want to get to the truth could be pointed in a better direction. So in that spirit, I try to do that type of thing in my own little way. I keep repeating, and it's going to come up, and we're going to get into it uh, maybe this afternoon, in fact, uh, where Shankara says that if you don't know the method of Vedanta, even if you've memorized all the scriptures, you should be ignored as though you were an ignoramus. So, um, just to put that in context, these were all great saints, you know, and they've all, they set an example for us and, and they've done good work. It's just that when Vivekananda says there are four paths, has, has anyone studied much of Vivekananda? Or a little bit? Vivekananda is a very, very important person in the uh, whole history of Vedanta because he came over and he spoke at the, uh, the, uh, in Chicago in 1898 or something at the Parliament of uh, Religions. And he said, brothers and sisters, I've come to tell you God is in everybody and we're up. And he was a big hit and uh, he was off to the races. But he taught that there were many paths to truth and that depending on the person's personality, you could pursue any of these paths and each one was as valid as the other and they would all take you to the same goal. On that point, Shankara says, sorry, that's not true. And on that point, a criticism has to come up. <clears throat> There's only one way, and that's knowledge. There is no other way. There is no other path to follow. The whole problem is a misconception. And the only, every other thing that we do Every meditation we do, every karma that we do, is based on ignorance. It can't remove the ignorance. It has to be the only thing that does remove ignorance in this world is knowledge of any subject. Whatever you're ignorant of, the only way to get rid of that ignorance is to get the knowledge of that thing. Well, in this case, we're all ignorant of ourselves. But we're not only ignorant of ourselves. 
If we were just ignorant of ourselves, it wouldn't really be a problem. Because in deep sleep, everyone is ignorant of themselves. No problem. It's not until you wake up <laughs> that you misconceive yourself for something that you're not. It's the misconception because of the ignorance that's causing us this suffering. So for Shankara, there's three types of ignorance. Not knowing, that's the root. I don't know myself. And because of that, I've misconceived myself. So avidya, ignorance, misconception, in Sanskrit, that word is called adhyasa. A misconception means, adhyasa means to take one thing and superimpose it on something else that's not really belonging to it. To take a rope and superimpose a snake on it. I don't know the rope, that's ignorance. Because I don't know the rope, that gives me the possibility of misconceiving it as a snake. That snake is called the superimposition, an adhyasa. If I'm in the desert and very thirsty, and I look out and I see what I think is water, it's because I don't know, it's just sand there. And I've superimposed, because of my ignorance of what's really there, I've taken it to be something else. But as soon as I know it's a rope, not only does my ignorance go, but my misconception goes. As soon as I know that it's just the desert sand, then my idea that there's water there goes. Shankara has a funny story somewhere in the Bashiyas where he describes our situation kind of like this. He says, we're all running after things that we think will make us happy, will make us peaceful, will make us free. We're all running after these things. It's kind of like a man who's running after a mirage. He's thirsty and he's wanting that water to quench his thirst. And so in the desert, he sees far in the distance a mirage. And so there's the mirage, and he's here and thirsty. And he's running, running, running towards the mirage. As he gets closer, at some point, before he gets to the water, at some point, he realizes, ah, it's just sand. There's no water there at all. As soon as he realizes that, Unless he's an utter idiot, will he continue to run after to get the water? In the same way, we've been running after so many things to make us happy and full and complete. But if at some point we came to realize there's no happiness there at all, in fact, all the things that I've been running after have been the cause of suffering for me. Why? Because they come to an end. At that point, he may stop running after it. May. But when he comes to know that they don't even exist, that all exists is the self alone, 
when he comes to know the self, it will be impossible for him to continue to run after those trinkets that he thought had some happiness in them. The third type of ignorance is doubt. Doubt is the other type. Is this real? What was the second? The second is misconception. First is ignorance, then taking something to be something that it's not because of our ignorance, or having doubts about it. Am I this body? Or am I something different from this body? Is there a soul inside of me that resides in the body? And then when the body goes, the soul will go out of uh, my head and uh, head off to the, to the races? Is that uh, the way to understand it? Is there some... Uh, we have so many doubts. But ignorance, misconception, doubts. Is it a rope or is it a snake? I'm not sure. Looks like a snake. Someone said it was a rope. Until you get the knowledge, you may have doubts. But the second you know the truth of the thing, all three of them go. The, the ignorance goes. Knowledge removes ignorance in the blink of an eye. You don't have to wait another second. There's no interlude. As soon as you know it's a rope, the snake is gone. So the ignorance is gone, the misconception goes, and all our doubts go as soon as we know the thing as it actually is. As soon as we know the self as it actually is, the misconception that I am this and this is mine will cease immediately. This is the idea. So the criticism of these other great saints and sages is only from the point of view of trying to point out what is the ancient Vedantic position on these subjects so that we as seekers of truth can understand that there's another way of looking at it, different than the way that's been presented by these saints and sages. It's not a question of asking who am I, it's not a question of getting samadhi, it's not a question of raising your, uh, what is it, your kundalini, thank you, out of the chakras. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm not going to say anything more about kundalini chakras and stuff. But I will tell you that nowhere in the Bhagavad Gita is there a mention of any of that. Nowhere in the Upanishads is there a mention of any of that. If there is such a thing, somebody will bring it to my attention. It's not Vedanta. It's Tantra. It's a different philosophy totally. Anyway, um, so, since it's morning and my brain is at like half speed here, rather than get into some deep Vedanta, maybe we'll try a little lighter stuff, which was, um, I was thinking this morning, 
you know, I had shared my story with you of how I stumbled across my teacher um, after Swami Dayananda on the train. I found the book and then I went to Swamiji and he couldn't answer my questions and then I went to my teacher and he answered my questions. I thought I'd back it up a little bit more back to 1967. So I had left my home. This will be a 10-minute story. And then maybe we can have a little discussion for 15 minutes. Hopefully somebody... Question and answer. Yeah, questions and answers. That somebody came up with some new questions over the evening, maybe. And we'll see. But anyway, or maybe this story will raise some questions. Because there's another tradition that became very famous in the West. Uh, some of you may have heard of it. It's called ISKCON, International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Hari Rama, Hari Krishna. Yeah? No? Hari Rama. Yeah? Oh, that, that's, it's one of the, they call them the Hari Rama, Hari Krishnas. Hari Krishna, Hari Rama. Hare Krishna, Hare Rama. <laughs> so, in 1968, I was living in the East Village of New York City, living on the streets, and in those days, young people that had no money, they would stand on the corner and panhandle. You know panhandle? Excuse me, spare change for money? <laughs> spare change is like that... Uh, I told you the story of the woman in the uh, train station, right? I was doing the same thing. <laughs> Spare change. For, and I was living, they had a, in, in the East Village in New York City. Has anybody been to the East Village in New York City? Yeah? So it's all uh, tall apartment buildings. And in those days, you used to be able to break into the the doors were open downstairs, or you'd wait till somebody goes in, you go in with them, and then you walk up to the very top floor, and in order to get onto the roof, there was one landing where you'd open the door, you'd be on the roof, and on that landing I would sleep. So I was sleeping up there, panhandling on the streets, wandering around and uh, doing whatever I was doing. So one day I'm walking down a street, and I hear, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And as I'm walking, it's getting louder, and a guy comes out, he's got a shaved head with one of those, you know, the, uh, they got the hair in the back, shaved head with the hair. And he, I never saw anything like this, so uh, he says, hey, you want to come in and chant? So I said, okay. So he, I come in, and it was a storefront that they converted into a temple. Somehow they had three floors in this building, and on the bottom floor, which used to be a shoe store, they made it into a temple. And I walked in, and there were seats like you're sitting in, and in the front was a whole, uh, what would you call it, like a puja thing, with pictures of Krishna and flowers, and in the center is sitting this guy, he's got robes and he's wearing uh, garlands they got on him, flowers. And that was Swami Bhaktivedanta. Anyone ever heard of Swami Bhaktivedanta? 
He's the founder of, uh, of what's called uh, Internet ISKCON. So I sat down in the back and within five minutes I memorized the mantra. It's not very difficult. Uh, Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari. You may sing it here. It's become like uh, the mantra in the world. He did that. So he came over and all of his disciples were a bunch of hippies. He picked up the hippies that were hanging around in New York City. That was his original disciples. Every single one of them was, not every, the vast majority were just a bunch of hippies that were hanging around. Hey, this is nice, Hare Rama, Hare Krishna. So I'm sitting in the back and I'm singing it and I'm liking it. Hey, this is interesting. And I look up on the stage, he's sitting there in the middle, and two things happened. He gave out a big belch. You know, belch? You know? Big one. And he wasn't, you know, usually in the West when we belch, we, you know, excuse me or something, you know, you. He didn't care at all. I said, wow, <laughs> this guy must be enlightened. <laughs> He's belching, he doesn't care about people. This is an interesting fellow. And on the stage, there was some guys and some girls. The guys were in dhotis, I never saw this, and kurtas. Uh, and the women were in saris. And they're up there, and they're like this, dancing like this, Hari Rama, and like they're in ecstasy. And I'm looking at this business and think, this is interesting. And one girl caught my eye up there. She was beautiful. She had this long black hair, and she looked like something out of heaven. So... At the end of the first kirtan, I went up to the guy, I said, how often do you do this? He says, we do this every day. You come 6.30, we do this every day. So I went back out on the street and did my thing. The next day I came back and sure enough, that girl was up there again. So I did the whole kirtan and while I was doing it, I felt like I was kind of transported. It was kind of, uh, I, I liked the feeling that it gave me. And I saw how happy she seemed. So at the end of the kirtan, I went up to her, I said, excuse me, can, can you explain to me what this is all about? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? So she says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went across the street and we had coffee together. And she handed me a book. And the book was called The Bhagavad Gita As It Is by Swami she said, here, you take this book, you, you could know. So that's when my first contact with the Bhagavad Gita was. And she said, all you have to do is sing Hari Rama, Hari Krishna, and it'll purify your mind, and Krishna will come into your life, and he'll bless you, and, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. So... We finished the coffee, I walked her back to the temple, and uh, she was in a sari, but she had a jacket on, 
and she went and she was living in the temple. So it became my habit to go back and I really got into the chanting. I liked it a lot and I would keep asking her for coffee after the kirtan to tell me more about Hari Rama, Hari Krishna philosophy. But I was getting very attached to her. And uh, at that time, I was wandering around because I was living on the street. So this was on 2nd Avenue. But there was a place on 6th Avenue, actually 6th Street, and there was a sign, I'm walking, and it says, Ramana, Mahan, Ramana Maharshi Arunachala Ashram. So what's this? And I walk in there, and there's this guy who was from Vermont, and he would come down, and he was teaching Ramana Maharshi's philosophy. And there were about 10 people in the room there, and uh, he starts talking about you have to ask the question, who am I? The main question is, who am I? There was no talk about Krishna, no talk about Hari Rama, Hari uh, chanting, or Krishna saving you from samsara. It was about, just ask the question, who am I? You want to meditate? Who wants to meditate? I do. Who am I? You want to do spiritual practice? Who wants to do spiritual practice? I do. Who am I? You want to go to heaven? Who wants to go to heaven? I do. Everything comes back to the I. So ask the question, who am I? Wow, this is unbelievable. No religion, no beliefs, just an inquiry into the nature of the self. This is much better than Hari Rama, Hari Krishna business. So I stopped taking with me and I read every single book I could on Ramana Maharshi. And I got into it and I told you that in those days I was having this problem. I was going up and coming down. And in those books it said Ramana Maharshi went up and he never came down. So I got the idea, I'm going to find someone like Ramana Maharshi. And you know what? Oh, by the way, that girl's name was Rukmini Devi. So I said, I'm going to go to India and I'm going to find someone just like Ramana Maharshi. Forget this Bhaktivedanta business. This is the real deal. And Bhaktivedanta was a theist. Krishna's God... You are a soul, and you and God are eternally different. The best you can be is his das, Krishna das, Vishnu das. You are das, a, a servant, and God is the one you serve. You never become God. But Ramana Maharshi was Advaita. You, you'll realize that you are that supreme reality. And that, of course, was in accordance with all of my psychedelic experiences, so I like that much better. Except with psychedelics, you keep coming down. And the whole problem was I wanted not to come down. So I got the idea, I'm going to go and I'm going to convince Rukmini to leave the Hare Krishna movement and come with me <laughs> to India and we're going to find Ramana Maharshi together. 
So, and I was a mess. I was living on the streets. I could hardly take a shower. Once in a while, I, I found a, there was a Russian bath that I could take a clean up in. So, anyway, I was, I decided, I got up the courage and I'm going to do this somehow. I'm going to ask her out for coffee, and in the coffee shop, I'm going to show her Ramana Maharshi, and I'm going to tell her, this is the thing. You and me will go to India, and we'll find Ramana together. So I got to the temple, <laughs> and uh, I went in. Bhakti Vedanta was there. All the guys were there. So, but Rukmini wasn't on the thing. For the first time that I had gone there, she wasn't up there dancing. So at the end of the kirtan, I went to one of the head Swamiji's, his name was Swami Brahmananda. He's a big guy, about six foot four, heavy guy, heavy set. He became famous later in the, one of the main guys after Swami Bhaktivedanta died. Anyway, I had become a little friendly with him, and I went up to him and I said, Swamiji, where's Rukmini? He goes, oh, Rukmini? She was married last week. Yeah. <laughs> Married last week. Yeah, yeah, Swami Bhaktivedanta said, you six ladies, you're marrying this six guys. They didn't even know each other. And, you know, arranged marriage. And that was it. Rukmini was married. So uh, I said, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to go to India alone. And that was it. So I never saw Rukmini again. And... I began, I bought a one-way ticket to Luxembourg and hitched to India. I told you the rest of the story there, to some extent. So, but all those years I always wondered, whatever happened to Rukmini? Did she really stay with the Hare Krishna people? Did she really stay with this theistic, uh, that when you die you're going to go to Vaikuntha and you'll be there with Krishna and all the devotees and everybody's going to be happy and you'll be there. Is that the kind of nonsense that she was going to stay with? No, I couldn't be. But who knew what happened? So I came back, of course, from India and uh, one, but I never lost my love for chanting. You, how many people know Swami Dayananda or of it? So you know he loved chanting too. You couldn't, every class starts with chanting. He loved chanting. He loved to lead the chanting. Uh, and he had a really good uh, um, energy with it. So he did kirtan and I always loved kirtan. I still love it to this day. I'm very friendly with the most famous Kirtanwala in the world right now. Ever hear of Krishna Das? He's a good friend of mine. He lives in my neighborhood. And, he's in uh, Germany right now. What's that? Krishnadas in Germany. He's touring. Is Germany. he in Germany? Yeah, I was just with him in Hawaii about a month ago for a retreat with Ramdas, and uh, we're fairly good friends, we know each other, we have a lot of mutual friends. And there was another guy who was better than Krishna Das. his name was Shamdas. Anyone ever hear of Shamdas? Anyone ever hear of Neem Karoli Baba? So Neem Karoli Baba had four Dasas, Krishna Das, Shamdas, ever hear of Bhagavan Das? He, Kirtan, and uh, there was one other das, skipping my memory now, he's famous. Ram Das. 
Brown does. <laughs> Most famous of all. Just said, you just said his name on Hey, this is me. What can I say? <laughs> so, these are the Dasas. They got the name. And uh, it's very funny because Neem Karoli Baba never taught anybody anything. So, Krishna Das is like a, Buddha, a, a Buddhist Hindu. He says it's all the same. Sham Das became a Vaishnava and thought that Neem Karoli Baba taught dualism. Ramdas, of course, is Advaita. He teaches non-dualism. So even though they all had the same guru, all had, they all have different philosophies, which shows that without a teacher, you just bring your own ideas to the, to the table. So anyway, to make the story, so 40 years later, 50 years later, this is maybe five or six years ago, or eight years ago or something, I'm in Woodstock and there's a kirtan and I'm attending the kirtan and the person's name is Gorvani. Anyone ever heard of Gorvani? Ah, big guy. I go up to him, I say, boy, that was a good kirtan. You, you're really talented. I really enjoyed it. Uh, he says, yeah, I was born into the Hari Rama, Hari Krishna movement. I said, really? I met Swami Bhakti Vedanta. I met Swami Bhakti Vedanta. Because <laughs> that's a big deal for these people because they did, this is like meeting Jesus Christ. So um, I met Bhakti Vedanta. I was there in the beginning. I said, You wouldn't happen to know anybody by the name of Rukmini Devi, would you? And he looks at me and says, Rukmini Devi? Rukmini Devi's my mother. <laughs> Rukmini Devi's your mother? I could have been your father. <laughs> I should have been your father. He says, what do you mean? I said, I know your mother from 1968. Uh, she's still with the movement? Still with the movement? She's like in the, the, the board of directors. She's the, one of the main old... She's absolutely in the movement. So I said, do me a favor, tell your mom that uh, if she uh, ever comes to Woodstock, uh, an old admirer of hers is around who would love to just say hello to her. So sure enough, she comes to Woodstock. The story's getting longer than I thought. I'll, I'll end it with this. Um, she comes to Woodstock, there's a kirtan, and she's sitting in the front. Gorvani was doing the kirtan. She came to hear her son do the kirtan. And I'm in the back, and I look over, I see she's over there. Now I'm old, she so I couldn't recognize her. She's got gray hair, that beautiful black hair that I always picture was gone. And she was an older woman now. We're now in our mid-late 60s, and uh, you don't look like you look when you were 20. So I went up to her, I said, Rukmini, yes? I'm the guy that used to take you for coffee <laughs> back in the 60s. Do you remember me? And she looked at me, she said, No, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. <laughs> oh, are you sure you don't remember me? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. I said, Well, anyway, just to let you know, I fell in love with you back then. I've been thinking about you for 40 years. <laughs> I, you. I wish you good luck. 
and that, and that was it. So I was there in the beginning with Bhaktivedanta and the Hare Krishnas. He inspired a lot of people, you can imagine, at least into spiritual life. But I'm very critical of Swami Bhaktivedanta. Mm -hmm. That type of philosophy gets me nauseous, in fact. <laughs> I, I can't stand it. But as far as him being a holy man or a saint or living a sattvic life, I can't touch his feet. I'm not like that. I'm like you guys. So this is the situation. But nevertheless, I'm going to criticize him if anybody says that that philosophy is the correct understanding of the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says, Aham Atma Gudakesha, Sarva Bhuteshu, I am the self in all beings. This verse that we just had, I am the witness in all the beings, Arjuna. I'm not different from you. The Gita does not teach Dvaita, it teaches Advaita. If we actually had the time to take a Bhagavad Gita class, then it would become very clear that you could not interpret this Gita as Dvaita unless you wanted to twist the whole thing into a mishmash. So my purpose of being critical of these other saints and sages is not because I'm better than them or I feel superior or I'm actually the only purpose is so that people that are listening will maybe not go in that direction and realize that Vedanta is not theology, Vedanta is not mysticism, Vedanta is not cold rationalism. It's a spiritual tradition, an ancient spiritual tradition where it introverts our minds and then the guru does something very special that I'm going to talk about, the very <coughs> method of teaching, where when the mind has become purified, when it's become qualified, when it's filled with humility, control of the senses, control of the mind, when you become ripe enough, then this teacher is able to point out a truth that can't be described by words, and that can't be conceived of by the mind. The method of Vedanta. I did a YouTube video that's called The Five Fundamentals of Vedanta. And those five fundamentals were the concept of the self as the witness. That's the most important. The witnessing consciousness is the self. Point number one. The second most important concept, number two, fundamental, what is the nature of ignorance? What is ignorance in Vedanta? What exactly is it? How does it come about? Who has it? How do you get rid of it? All of that. What is ignorance? Ignorance is taking the witness to be the witness, to mix up the self and the not-self, to misconceive the subject for the object. There's no other ignorance than this. That's the second fundamental. The third fundamental is 
the difference between doing something and knowing something. By doing something, you can never get the knowledge of the self. But by doing something, you can purify your mind. So there's some things to be done, but those things will never remove your ignorance. At most, they can make you eligible for knowledge. But only knowledge can remove ignorance. What is the difference between knowing something and doing something? This discussion, because the whole Gita seems to be telling us what we have to do. And I'm saying no matter how much you do, you'll never get rid of your ignorance. So is there a contradiction that has to be made clear? What's the difference between doing and knowing? The fourth point is, in Vedanta, there are two perspectives. One is called the absolute perspective, the perspective of what is really true, what is, what is real, what is actually the final reality. That's called Paramartha, the highest truth, the real truth. When ignorance is gone, what is that absolute point of view? It's called paramartika drishti. A drishti is a viewpoint. There's an absolute viewpoint that we have to understand very carefully, and then there is a relative viewpoint, the viewpoint of ignorance. The relative viewpoint is the point of view of ignorance. It's where there are gurus and students and people who have mixed up the self from the not-self and people who have to purify their minds and people who have to go to a guru and get the teaching. All of that is what viewpoint? Somebody. The point of view of ignorance. If you don't understand clearly these two viewpoints, the relative and the absolute get mixed up and the whole Vedanta is incomprehensible. And the final fundamental is this method of Vedanta. How does Vedanta function that it can convey to a student this reality that the mind can't even grasp, that no word can describe it. And the teacher in the scripture only have words. What else? He's not going to, I mean, some people, they put a peacock feather on your head and you get Shaktipat or something. But this is how to bring about the knowledge of the self when no word, the Upanishad says this, that from which all words retreat, having failed to reach, along with the mind. The mind cannot conceive of this truth. Words cannot describe this truth. 
but all we have are words and concepts. So how can a teacher teach this to a student? There has to be a method. This is the method that Shankaracharya says, if you don't know this method, though you've memorized the whole scripture, you should be ignored like a fool. I keep repeating this uh, phrase here. Because you have to take it to heart. Does that person really know the method of Vedanta? If he doesn't, no matter how saintly, Mother Teresa, she's taking the lepers on the street, picking them up, bringing them feet. A saint, did she know the method of Vedanta? Sounded very Jewish. Vedanta. Anyway, she didn't. She's a saint. I can't. I had. We can hardly think of a person who would, you know, sacrifice their life for the needy and the that type of saintliness. But a saint is not a jnani. A saint is not a jnani. A holy man is not a jnani. You can be a holy man and not a jnani. Of course she didn't know the method of it. She thought Jesus Christ died for her sins and when she dies she's going to heaven. How could she know the method of Vedanta? So the fifth fundamental is that we have to know what is this method of Vedanta. And um, this chapter is a very beautiful example, we haven't gotten into it yet, of the very method of Vedanta in the scripture. This is not Shankara's idea. This is not the Gita's idea. Every single Upanishad uses this method. Most scholars think there's no philosophy in the Upanishads. One Upanishad talks about the five koshas, the five sheaths. Another Upanishad talks about the three states. Another Panishad talks about the seer and the seen. Another Panishad talks about um, purifying your mind. There are antidotes and stories and parables, but there's no philosophy in the Upanishads. If you read them by yourself, you'll find no philosophy. It's a bunch of rumblings and ramblings of the rishis. What did they know? What did they know about what we now know in the world, about astrophysics? What did they know about evolution? What did they know about cognitive neuroscience? Nothing. They were just rambling on. There's no philosophical content to the, to the Upanishads. And this Bhagavad Gita is a mixture of, there's no philosophy in the Gita, there's Samkhya Yoga in the Gita, Samkhya. There's Yoga philosophy. There's a little sprinkling of Vedanta there. There's a mixture of theology. There's a mixture of uh, Mimamsa. You can find, but a philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita? Not likely. This is what modern scholars think about the Gita, the Upanishads. But once you know the method of Vedanta, the Upanishads become a unified teaching. 
a deep, profound philosophy that's not only in a totally harmonious with each other, but in exact harmony with our own experience. The profundity of the Upanishads is something that we haven't seen in any other philosophical tradition that has ever come. My humble opinion. Everybody has to judge for themselves about that, of course, but some people have thought so. So I think that sums up um, my criticism of these other teachers. It shouldn't be taken that it's, I'm putting myself above them or that there was something wrong with them and that they weren't holy people and they weren't sattvic people. It's just that these five fundamentals they weren't aware of. They weren't at least clear, clear with regards to all of those points. Time. No questions. See you at uh, 2.30. Have a good afternoon. Oh, oh sorry.